We gon' ride it out until it's over, love Get you what you want and call me the plug Living every day like I already want Gonna head, take the bag and run Welcome to uh, Perspectives on Pro Cycling, uh, the Outer Lines version of looking back at some of the careers of some of the newsmakers in the sport of pro cycling. Welcome, Alex Dito from the Great White North uh, up in Edmonton. How you doing, Alex? Well, great to be on, Steve. It's not white yet. Uh, it's the middle of September, but you know, the weather's starting to get a little chilly in the mornings. So when do you stop riding up there? That's the big question. I think anybody from Arizona would probably want to know. Well, you know, I, I ride throughout the winter, uh, admittedly not as much when there's snow on the ground, but I put fully studded tires on my mountain bike and just go out and rip around on the single track trails that are all packed down and you get a lot of grip with a fully studded 29er tire. Well, I've been to Edmonton many a times and I can tell you that the people are not only hardy, but they're outdoorsy up there. Uh, I mean, I think that sort of, you know, says that with the trail system and the way uh, the uh, river valley is that goes through Edmonton, uh, great place to recreate, especially in the winter. Well, it, it, you kind of have to, you know, if you, if you uh, didn't get outside and do things outside, especially in the winter, you'd kind of go stir crazy. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, if you have the right clothes uh, and some, you know, some gear that, you know, is used for winter, it's, it's not that hard and it's actually quite a lot of fun. And Greg Lamont will probably tell you the same thing about Minnesota, which is probably equally as cold. I agreed. I think the, our, our, uh, our, uh, Environments are very similar to, to Minneapolis here in Edmonton. They've got a river going through the city, trail systems, um, cross-country ski tracks in the winter, which are great for mountain biking in the summer. Road riding is awesome. You get out of the city, you're on gravel road. You know, it just goes on and on. So Canadian Cycling Ambassador, I think that pretty much sums up uh, kind of your life and career. You know, you've, you've done about everything in cycling from coaching to uh, on the road, on the track, you founded the Tour of Alberta, you know, you're a commentator for OLN and CBC over the years and now with Flow Bikes. You've really made your passion, your life. Uh, tell us about, you know, a little bit on not only the, uh, you know, the, the genesis of how you got into cycling, but even just how you've been able to take that and, and make that part of your life. Well, see, that's a great question. Um, I think it's more of an evolution than anything, but, you know, I've always maintained that cycling is my passion. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm able to make a living from it, but other times that's, that's okay if I don't, but that doesn't mean I stop, uh, you know, being involved in the sport. And I, I guess primarily I look back on all the people that helped me as a junior rider. They weren't getting paid. The people were just, you know, being mentors for myself and the other juniors we were, that we were racing with. And I, I, I just feel like I have to give back to the sport that has given me so much. And cycling is not necessarily synonymous with uh, Canada, but hockey is. How did hockey play a role in your transition and, and sort of as a baseline when you were growing up in Vancouver? Well, yeah, I did grow up in the, in the suburb of Vancouver and, you know, like most Canadian kids, you know, it was kind of dream of being a professional hockey player. Uh, Tony Esposito, a goalie from the Chicago Blackhawks was my hero. And I really wanted to be a goalie, but it turned out that when I started playing, um, I'd already been a figure skater for a couple of years, eight, nine, 10 years old, because my sisters were figure skaters. 
Um, so it was easier, I guess, for my mom to take us all to the rink and be figure skaters. But I learned how to skate, which was really important because when I started playing hockey around age 11, I was skating faster than pretty much anyone on the ice. Didn't realize it was figure skating that did it. But anyway, uh, so I wasn't allowed to play goal, which was a, a real bummer. Uh, but I loved playing ice hockey, scoring goals, working on a team, being an individual, uh, you know, with, with the, the strength that I had, which was mainly skating. And um, that was just, it just, you know, one thing led to another. And by the time I was 16, 17 years old, I was, you know, going to the, uh, the provincial championships uh, and, uh, and just really loving hockey. But then in the summer, uh, I think I was 16, I decided, well, I thought, well, what, what should I do to stay in shape for the hockey season? And I thought of cycling for some reason. And I, I bought a, a 10 speed at the, at, from a guy at high school. It might have been stolen for 20 bucks. Uh, I've worked on it with my dad's uh, woodworking tools, believe it or not, like pipe wrenches and things and it took things apart, put them back together and then did some, did some road riding. <clears throat> and then my neighbor, two houses down, just to, you know, by coincidence, was a, a president of the Cycling Association of British Columbia, our, our state our province. And he said, you should go to these time trials, this 10-mile time trials that the Masters Club puts on. And went to that, met some other juniors. And they said, well, why don't you go to this race? It was a criterium in a suburb of Vancouver. And I, I was just the novice category. And I, I was, didn't even have cycling shorts. And I won the race. Um, and then they said, well, you should try this race. And it just sort of evolved from there. Um, and then it turned out that my mom had ridden her road bike with her dad, my grandfather in England, when they grew up doing all these randonneur events, uh, and, you know, all this history started coming out. And because my mom, I think was familiar with cycling, they understood it. And, and my parents encouraged me to go and do more cycling and, and enter bike races. And so people know you as a road rider, mainly from the uh, epic moment, which we'll get to in a little bit on the, about the Tour de France. But track cycling is where you made your first foray into the sport, you know, a uh, medal at the Commonwealth Games, you know, you're in LA, you did, uh, you know, some things on the track, maybe that uh, people don't realize. Do you, when you look back at your career, do you think you were equally as good on the track as maybe the road and maybe, maybe should have put more time into that? How, how do you value looking back at both those disciplines and the balance you had? Well, I always say to the juniors, uh, young riders that I coach here in Edmonton at our Juventus Cycling Club, it starts on the track. You learn so much about being a cyclist when you ride the track. And because of my hockey background, that working on anaerobic power, which I didn't even know what that was then, but that just means sprinting between the blue lines, going fast and hard, short bursts of energy. Well, that was perfect for track cycling. So when I started track cycling, I had that anaerobic power already built into my body because of the hockey and I was able to quickly move up inside the 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 ranks on on the provincial cycling team for track and then going to the nationals by the time I was uh, you know junior and by the time I was 18 as a junior I won every event at the junior national track cycling championships on the road I was useless at that time <laughs> don't get me wrong but that was such a great feeling to be able to to, to use that power that I had. And within a couple of short years with a coaching from <clears throat> Baz Lysett, who was our junior coach in, in BC at the time, such a great guy. 
he was able to, he was, he was actually also from Britain. Uh, he was able to, uh, you know, bring us juniors that we raced, you know, I raced together with together and we've just elevated to a new level. And, you know, without that track cycling background, there's no way that I would have uh, been in the sport and progressed into the sport where I, where I eventually did. So you springboard into the amateur ranks with 7-Eleven on the track. Then you graduate to the pro ranks with the road team in 7-Eleven. Uh, you know, you had a good cast of characters on that uh, team. Looking back, uh, who's, you know, how do you characterize and who were the biggest characters, uh, you know, in that group, which were primarily North Americans? Well, I think we were all characters in our own way on the team, but I have to back back up because there's a great story there. So uh, just so happened in Vancouver, as I was just turning from junior to senior, we didn't call it U23 then, um, there was a professional rider there who we'd always looked up to. His name was Ron Heyman. Ron was a pro uh, at the time and living in Vancouver. We trained, we trained with him in the winter. And in the fall of 1980, uh, you know, I was just 19 at the time. And he said to be, if you wanted to see if you're a real cyclist, you got to go to Belgium and race. So he arranged for me to go to Belgium, um, found a you know, place for me to stay outside of Ghent with his, uh, the guy he knew there, Luke Eiselmans. And I flew over there. First time to Europe, no credit card, no phone, landed in, in large Germany at the Canadian Forces base because they got, they got me a free ticket to get there on the, on the Department of National Defense flight, believe it or not. Took the train to Ghent, got off the train and met Luke, you know, this white ghost of a guy because no, no one has suntans in Belgium. He took me to this place and for two months, I raced all the Kermess races I could and actually won three, actually sold three races, believe it or not. I, because I needed the money. So get in the break, the guy offers you money and you get second and he gets first and you know, it, it all works out because they, they want to win races to get better contracts as a pro. And it was such an eye-opening experience. And I, I, you know, I was able to be competitive then that um, Ron then said to Jim Okowitz that they should hire me on the 7-Eleven team. So that fall in 81, I went as a stagiari, which, I didn't even know that that was a term, but that's what I did. I went out to um, race in uh, Apple Lap in New York City and uh, you know, a few other races on the East Coast. And we were firing bottle rockets up the back of the 7-Eleven team van, down, going down Fifth Avenue in New York City. And I was like, I want to be on that team. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, that was just that was an eye-opening experience. And it just like snowballed from there. So you've got, you know, the 80s were the Wild West for Canadians and Americans going over to Europe and race. You know, Jack Boyer, Greg Demgen, Greg LeMond, Steve Bauer, you, um, Ron Heyman, like you said, you know, Chris Carmichael, it goes on and on. You know, there, it was really the, the first wave uh, that kind of made and created the pathway for North Americans. True? Yeah, I, you know, I would back up even a little further because Jack Boyer and Mike Neal were both pros in Europe in the late 70s, and Ron Heyman as well. But Mike Neal went to Italy, Boyer went to France, Heyman went to Belgium. And there was probably, uh, those the three main guys that went and did that. 
I'm, I'm not sure when John Eustace went over, but you could probably check that. But they were the first guys. And then when the 7-Eleven sponsorship came along, some, you know, Akowitz was able to leverage Heyman's experience, Mike Neal's experience, and Boyer's experience, and use what they did to help us take it to the next step. And it was, I mean, looking back, <clears throat> it was brutal. We were staying in hotels with mirrors on the ceiling, you know, paying an hourly rate to stay at the hotel. I don't know, like it. We, we, there was one time in Belgium, we were there, we were at like an old folks home that uh, Richard Dionquier had set up for us. So there's all these old timers, you know, retired people going, you know, shuffling around, getting their food. And here's all these young bike racers at the same food line, getting our food. I mean, it, like just looking back, just insane. Trailblazers. <clears throat> totally. <laughs> <laughs> so let's fast forward to 86, this team from the States, you know, for the most part, a lot of the Europeans didn't know who you guys were, at least, you know, top to bottom from a roster standpoint. It's stage 2A, as I understand it. And uh, you take this flyer, man, and you're out on a breakaway. Tell us about that moment, which now lives in infamy. Well, we should back up one more time because, the, you know, the team had turned pro after the 84 Olympics. Um, I had been racing on the track at the Olympics and I really didn't feel I was ready to race full-time pro doing 250 kilometers uh, uh, stages or individual races in, in the next year. So I raced amateur for the national road team, Canadian national road team in, in 85, whereas the rest of the team turned pro and they did the Giro right away. First year pro, the team does the Giro because of Mike Neal's connections. And Eric Hyden actually ended up winning the inter-Giro sprints at the Giro that year because they had the Avocet cyclometers on their bikes and they could tell exactly where the inter intermediate sprints were coming up and they would do the lead outs right up to the meter and Haydn would be able to win those intermediate sprints and he won that jersey at the end of the Giro. So based on that and a few other things that happened for 86, we got invited to the Tour of France and you know, <laughs> Again, we were, it was the first time an American team has raced there. Other Americans had raced at the tour, like Boyer, on French teams. But we were all so raw. No one on the team had any experience racing at the tour. Boyer hadn't joined the team yet. You know, Oach hadn't raced the tour. He'd raced in Europe before. We had no idea what we were doing. And it was more or less just go to the start line and look at the profile and figure out what, what we can do on the day. That was it, day by day by day. I looked at a profile and went, hmm, there's about, I think there's four intermediate time sprints in 80 kilometers, rough numbers. Like, what? Time bonuses, four time bonuses, and then a time bonus at the finish? Unbelievable. Um, so I decided if I can get away early, I'm going to try to, you know, get some of these time bonus sprints. I put on a skin suit at the start because it was an 80K road stage. Well, we race 80 kilometer uh, criteriums in North America we always wear a skin suit because you are more aerodynamic. We don't need pockets for food. I showed up the start line and the rest of my team were laughing at me going and it actually kind of horrified too. Cause they said, Alex, we're trying to fit in. We're trying to look like Europeans, European bike racers with jerseys and shorts. And you show up at a road race with a skin suit. Now they call them speed suits. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I got away at the, at the start. It kind of rolled off the front, you know, outside of Paris. It was, you know, windy. And I got out of sight, out of mind, put it in the 12, because we only had a 5312. We didn't have an 11 back then. And I went as hard as I could. I got three or four minutes and started getting these time bonuses. Uh, and then it was just a matter of hanging on to the, to the break that caught me. And uh, Phil Anderson was in the break and he, he told me, yeah, in the jersey, Mike, come on. And you know, I was like, Phil Anderson just spoke to me. I couldn't believe it. Uh, and my job at, the, at that point was to keep the breakaway rolling so that we didn't get caught by the, by the main group at the finish. So Van der Rodden couldn't win the time bonus at the finish. And uh, yeah, I ended up uh, just keeping keep riding tempo. As soon as the guy started doing cat and mouse, I went to the front, road tempo, road tempo, road tempo, just buried myself. And the break stayed away. And I didn't win the stage, but ended up uh, taking that yellow jersey plus four others. I always remember Phil Liggett at the finish coming up with a mic. Hi, Alex, you're the first American to wear the yellow jersey. And I was like, Phil, uh, I'm Canadian. And he just immediately changed. He didn't did blink an eye. And he says, oh, you're the first North American. <clears throat> uh, uh, yeah, I guess I am. You're right. Because <laughs> he didn't want to be wrong. <laughs> And he, he coined that phrase, and that stuck with it, stuck with me ever since. And that has you know, stayed with you. That's the great thing about cycling. It stayed with you your uh, whole life, you know, as that first North American in a yellow jersey. How's that, you know, paid off for you uh, in so many different ways? Well, I get a lot of free coffees and a few free beers. <laughs> Every once in a while, it, uh, it still comes up. But uh, even in, in, my, uh, in my business life uh, in, in IT, um, you know, I meet, sometimes I'll meet a, a cycling fan as, as a, who's a customer or a prospect. And, and if, if they find out who I am, they'll immediately start Googling. And, and then, you know, like they can't believe that I've, they've actually met, you know, the first North American to wear the yellow jersey at the Tour de France. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's paid its, paid its uh, you know, dues in one way or another over the years. It's, 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 uh, it's fun to... Uh, to share you know, the, the, the history with folks, that's for sure. And what about the epilogue for the time trial? Uh, <laughs> you know, what about that, uh, you know, for the whole team? I think that afternoon was uh, memorable <clears throat> as well, right? Yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, that was memorable in, in, a, in another way. Um, so I had the yellow jersey by a few seconds. Uh, and it was a split stage day. So there was a ro the road race in the morning where I got away and then the team time trial in the afternoon. And yeah, well, team time trial is just that. You got to work together as fast as you can. And uh, in retrospect, I probably should not have taken a turn. I should have sat on the back because I was completely gassed from the morning efforts. And so was Chris Carmichael and, uh, and Jeff Pierce because they had been uh, at, front, at the front uh, blocking and, and chasing down brakes. So... Yeah, so it was like a long time trial, like 60 odd K. And um, I was, I was just, you know, by the time we got into some hillier sections, I was, I was starting to get, I was getting dropped. I couldn't hold on. We'd gone through some turns that were like super fast and un, you know, blind turns. And we'd had some crashes. Eric Hyden crashed. We had to slow down and wait. And pretty soon, um, you know, Oates and Mike Neal in the car were going, the, the team might not make the time cut in the team time trial because we we're just just it was just so awful 
So when I started getting dropped towards like 15, 20K to go, they, they drove up beside us and said, Alex, you're going to have to drop off. No race radios, by the way. You're going to have to, yeah, the team's going to have to leave you because we might, might not make the time cut. And they told Jeff and Chris to wait for me and ride with me to get me to the finish. And the guys carry on. And, um, and then uh, Pep, Kid, and I just started trying to do the best we can. And they nursemaided me to the finish. And I got to the finish line, I think, 30 seconds within the time limit. Uh, so I could carry on the Tour de France. See, and that's amazing just in itself, right? Looking, yeah. I think what goes through the Tour de France, mm -hmm. if you've talked to any, uh, it's a journey from stage one to stage 20. Every day, yep. And you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit to uh, Canadian cycling. And uh, if you look back at, from your era all the way to now, to Matteo Delsen, to... Uh, uh, you know, a couple of the riders recently in the Tour de France. Um, what Hugo have you? Yeah, who exactly? And um, you know, they've had a, somewhat of the same journey. They've either had to come up through a North American team, then jump over to a World Tour team, which has historically been European based. Has it changed at all? Do you think uh, over you know 30, 40 years now for that entry point for Canadian cyclists? And then what about the depth of Canadian cycling uh, nowadays? Well, you know, I think it's different. It's changed, absolutely. Um, now there's, there's much more structure built into Canadian cycling systems, whether it's the club-based system, the provincial systems, or the national team system. Uh, so there's more of a, of a pathway, I think, that for riders to follow. That said, Oh man, it's so competitive now to get on the national team. Riders have to be so focused on training and development and, you know, year long. Whereas, you know, for us, it was, I think it was more, you know, we, we were, we were training hard, but it wasn't very scientific. Let's say. Let's talk about the uh, tour of Alberta. Uh, went on successfully for five years. Um, it took you almost seven years to really get that off the ground. Um, talk well, about there the was, foundation there, of that. Yeah, yeah there was forth. lots of work going. Yeah, there was lots of work back and forth behind the scenes to get to raise some money and get uh, a lot of people, you know, the right players involved. Um, and yeah, it, it was still a struggle once we got got the initial funding to keep going and keep it running uh, and without losing money. Um, it, yeah, it's it's definitely tough in a in an environment here in, in Alberta where cycling is not part of the culture. So there was continuous education about what the race uh, was and what it could do from an exposure, a brand uh, perspective. And looking back at people don't realize that event, especially the first uh, two, three years had some pretty big names. I mean, Peter Sagan, uh, Rohan Dennis made his mark there before people knew who Rohan Dennis was, you know, he had a breakaway into yeah. this dinosaur monument out on the Eastern uh, plains, uh, east of uh, Calgary and, and Edmonton yep. up there. Uh, he had uh, other guys like Daryl Impey. Um, uh, who yeah, won he won. Daryl Impey actually won the race on the last day on time bonuses. And beat Ryan Anderson, a Canadian. Amazing, was, yeah. You know, do you take a lot of pride in looking back and saying, hey, we had some of these huge names. Cadell Evans was there, uh, yep. you know, after he had won the tour. you take pride in that? 
Absolutely, Steve. Um, it was such, it was, you know, it was a dream of mine to, uh, to host the race and to have it run for five years was, was fantastic. And I do take pride, you know, I, I, people still come up to me and tell me how much they enjoyed the race and were really sad that it wasn't able to continue. Uh, and uh, yeah, that it was, it was a real special, special time. Absolutely. So let me ask you a tougher question. You were the founder and then you were the, the you know, the, the chairman of that. And, you know, there were some things that went on there, uh, maybe you could say politically, that, that uh, upended that a little bit. Looking back, uh, do you think there's a way that, that may have been able to be altered, uh, whether it was relationships you had with a city like Calgary, which, you know, let's face it, they were, mm -hmm. uh, they got uh, a little miffed a little bit. And I, as I came to know, traveling up to Alberta, there was always an Edmonton versus Calgary kind of rift that goes on up there. And I didn't know. I thought it was all hockey based. Um, so I know it's a tough question, but you know, did those dynamics play a role in uh, uh, how things maybe unraveled after year five? Yeah, I think there were, there were certain players inside of the uh, Detroit of Alberta uh, organization that were, that were very Edmonton focused and did not want to share control of the event with folks in Calgary. And that, that was really the undoing of, of the event at the, as a bottom line. It became us versus them as opposed to we. Uh, coming from you know, the neighboring province of British Columbia and Vancouver, I didn't really understand this, this crazy ego battle between Calgary and Edmonton. Uh, and it, it, I didn't really think it was that big a deal, but it became a huge deal uh, with some of the personalities involved. And uh, it, it, it was really, you know, it was really the undoing. And, you know, in retrospect, maybe I could have been more of a fence builder, fence mender, you know, between the two organizations, but the die was cast uh, after a certain conversation between our chairman and, uh, and one of the, um, the leaders in Calgary, business leaders in Calgary. And uh, from then on, they, uh, they never spoke. So let's end the tour of Alberta on a positive note. The first national park in Canada to host a professional cycling race, Jasper National Park, which was absolutely just mind blowing how beautiful it was taking a course through there. Uh, take us back to those couple of years where it was in Jasper and uh, as a proud Albertan, what that was like to host uh, a world-class cycling event there. Well, it is, it's about a three and a half hour drive from Edmonton to, to Jasper, to the National Park. And uh, it, it was certainly a logistical challenge to get the race to go that far. Uh, and we did it twice uh, with, the, with the huge support of, of the town of Jasper. I mean, there's only like, I think a couple thousand people that live there. They're in the federal park. So we had to con you know, adhere to all the, you know, the controls and policies of the national park. And so many people there rallied behind the event to help it happen. And you know, we, we had to, finishes, two different finishes there. Um, one up at, at Marmot Basin, where I do a lot of my schemo races now. Uh, that's another, my winter activity. Uh, I got to know those guys really well. And another one in a, the, uh, an area where I never thought we would be able to have a race just because of the environmental sensitivity of, of there's a paved road that goes up to these, um, to these pools, these hot pools. But to have the race finish there was uh, an extraordinary, um, uh, you know, honor to to be able to to bring the race and share the the beauty of uh, 
of Jasper National Park with the rest of the world. Uh, technology and cycling is the <clears throat> next subject I want to talk to you about. You know, they're both passions yours. Um, how have you been able to influence uh, through the companies you've been involved in and take that passion to influence positive change within cycling with technology? And, uh, and a couple examples maybe you can provide us. Well, I, I don't think we can stop technology from advancing, you know, whether, you know, in our world, of course, but within cycling, you know, there's certainly are a number of traditionalists out there that say, you know, you know, we don't need power meters in the races or, you know, race radios, you know, in the rider's ear, you know, and I was kind of an anti-race radio guy for a while, but, you know, it really has, you know, enabled the sport to grow and change and become more modern. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, the, the idea of power meters, you know, has really uh, been able to allow the riders, as I mentioned before, to, to train more specifically. And I've used, even used it myself now um, with the, the Sufferfest app uh, to train hard, you know, more uh, targeted and be more efficient with my training time. And it allows more people to become, um, you, know, you know, involved in the sport. It, 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 you know, given limited time that they might have with a full-time job and be more, more specific with their training. The other, the other side are, is the, the material side. I mean, you know, carbon has actually, you know, obviously changed things a lot, but the next level of technology is going to be something called graphene. Now, you may have, some people may have heard of graphene, but when you add graphene with carbon fiber, even a 0.5% graphene into a carbon fiber layup, it can change the way the frame is, is, uh, is structured. Uh, it'll, you can get rid of most of the voids that, car that, can, be, that can happen in a carbon uh, mold. You can add durability, you can add strength, you can add resiliency or compliancy. It is an, it's an amazing material. And it's going to, you know, I know this, but I can, it, it, it's a matter of now getting the, the bike industry to understand that graphene is going to be the new wonder material. It's not, it's not just carbon fiber, but it's going to be graphene. And if you look back now with history on your side, can you make a, you know, cast a little bit uh, of an opinion on how cycling has really been a technological leader, not just bike, but even if you looked at uh, physiological components that maybe have transferred over to sports like athletics or even some sublime sports like wrestling where the training patterns at least the forefront of that um, have really been you know the precipice of all that has been pushed by cycling wouldn't you agree yeah, I would say so. I think uh, it's just inherent that, you know, in order to improve, you need to understand heart rate and, and uh, power output versus weight, the rider weight. Um, cycling has always been, you know, intensely focused on the weight of the bike and, and the, the, how, how the materials of the, of the, the bike can uh, perform. Uh, so putting all that together now is, you know, the data scientists are now becoming involved. We see that with the NTT team and, and what they're doing with, with data uh, from the riders and choosing riders for specific races based on their strengths and picking the best team for a specific race. Um, so sort of amalgamating all this data and, and, and doing some uh, big data crunching on it. Uh, and, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's be honest. With, with the drug controls, 
cycling has led the way. Uh, no other sport has the strict controls that cycling has when it, when it comes to drug testing. And this has now created, I think, a world in which other sports need to, are, are paying attention to and going, wow, is that really what, what, we, you know, what needs to be done in order to, to create control? Some sports, I think, are even afraid that they, if they went to the level that cycling does with drug controls, that might sort of open up Pandora's box. But you know, when a professional rider has to uh, go and enter into a website where they're going to be at every minute of every day, 360 days a year, and be available for testing at any of those times for blood and urine tests, that's 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 taking it to a new level. Now, some people might say, "Well, cycling deserves it because of all the past history." Uh, th that may be the case, uh, but uh, it 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 really has. You know, I think if if other sports were to take this level of uh, of consistent testing for for athletes, I think it would create a much level more playing field for for the rest of the athletes in all these different sports but has there ever been uh, anybody from the edmonton oilers or the calgary flames have you ever had any dialogue with those groups just on uh, uh, some of the transfer of knowledge from cycling over to a sport like hockey you know which is so big in canada uh, mm -hmm. you're certainly starting to see a lot of that uh, whether strength and conditioning whether it's the the preparation and recovery uh, here in the u.s with sports like basketball and specifically football, I think right now. Have you had any of those conversations? I have not actually had conversations with, with any of the, uh, the pro hockey teams themselves, but you know, I do see anecdotally, I see them using the indoor bikes uh, for recovery after games. They'll sit on the indoor, train, uh, indoor bike for a certain period of time to get their legs flushed out. Um, but I do know, and I do know that there are many pro hockey players that love cycling in the summer and use it for cross training because it's low impact. It's not like running that wears you down. They need to have time, be able to recover during the summer, but at the same time, get a good workout. Um, and, and cycling does, does allow them to do that. So before we leave the technology subject, I want to talk about the rage right now, uh, obviously through the pandemic of indoor cycling. And uh, you've certainly done a, your fair share up in uh, Edmonton in the winter indoor. Um, talk about that. And do you think that's really revolutionary or do you think it's temporary? Or do you think uh, part of this is the hardcore rider versus really the uh, person who's really being introduced into cycling, you know, on a Peloton or a Wahoo or, you know, What's your perspective as someone who's, uh, you know, in the in the tech mode of uh, so much of this? Sure. Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Steve. You know, and I've always said, you know, hey, I want to be outside to do a workout. So I do my ski mountaineering racing in the winter, ride outside and with my studded tires, as I said, on the snow. But this year, uh, this winter, I decided I was going to train for the world uh, Grand Fondo Championships, which were going to be held in Vancouver, uh, my hometown, in September this year. Unfortunately, it got canceled. But I, I signed up with Sufferfest, and they assigned me a coach, and I just focused on those indoor efforts starting in January. 
did just still did some you know outdoor stuff as well just for you know just for grins but my focus training was all done indoors on on sufferfest with my wahoo trainer and kicker and let me tell you by this by this by this spring i was so fit when i went for an outdoor ride the hills that i normally ride around my town my home they're not big hills but i was just like flying up them my weight drop i was you know in, in I, I talk about my my sales weight you know what i'm you know do, just regular days i'm 170 pounds i got down to 155 this spring and i was lean and strong and anecdotally that i was just i was just amazed how how much that three months of indoor training helped me get to that level that quickly 59 years old you know um i was it really kind of impressed me that i was able to do that i impressed myself let's say um so i really believe there's a big future for these the indoor cycling training but i have to say also it's just like riding outdoors if you want to just go ride and have fun and you know join a few uh, zwift events go ahead you've had a good history and a good run with commentating oln and cbc up there um how did you view this year's tour first of all and then secondly that experience with flow bikes and what they're doing uh you know how has that manifested for you personally uh and transferred a you know maybe to a new audience in canada well, I mean, this year's tour was fantastic. I mean, we all never thought it could actually happen, never mind continued through to the end. Um, but uh, it was so exciting. Every day there was, there was something new happening. Uh, of course, the lead change on the time trial was just, you know, unexpected, but, uh, you know, just another way of, of creating more buzz around the event. So it was a, it was a, great, it was a great race to, uh, to, to watch and you know to work actually i you know I, normally I'm, I'm watching the race at home yelling at the tv why aren't they working why aren't they attacking you know the, the crosswind section why aren't the guys at the front this time i was able to make those same comments on flow bikes as an analyst after the race each day and you know, i really really enjoyed doing that had a lot of fun uh, sharing uh, some opinions some controversial uh but that was fine i uh i really enjoyed it and i you know i, I hope that i can uh, do some more with flow um you know in this this fall and next year and what kind of feedback positive and negative what uh what pot did you stir because i know sometimes with some of the anal analytics you do you can stir the pot yeah absolutely well you know i, I was very critical of the way peter sagan was sprinting you know, and he can, he can see certainly crosses the line or pushes the edge on, on the rules when he's bumping guys off wheels. And the one stage where he, you know, he almost crashed uh, Van Aert in that final, uh, that was just shocking to me. Yeah, sprinters can be tough and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, hold your line. But, you know, when they start doing, deviating off their line and doing crazy stuff and causing potential crashes, that was over the line for me um and it was interesting i think like half the comments i saw were supportive of me being critical of, of sagan and half were against it like oh that's just sprinting that's how they are well dude if you're in that sprint and you're you've got guys you know slamming like that in front of you 
yeah, it's, um, you see your life flash before your eyes. It's, it's not what you want to do with your livelihood. So anyway, that, that was, uh, part of, uh, part of, part of what I was yelling at the screen at. So, um, had some fun and no, no, no harm, no foul. Biggest character you you raced with. Maybe that's the mm. best way to put it. It could be on your, on your team. Could be yeah. someone you raced against. Well, I would have to say some of the biggest characters that I that I rode with were, were the guys on the 7-Eleven team. Uh, but it, it's hard to single anyone out. We all had our different uh, strengths, but or or uh, characters, if you will. Uh, Greg Demjan was, uh, you know, such a character. We call him the Doughboy because he was sort of a little bit, little bit heavier, but he could descend like a madman. His had this tube body shape that just somehow turned into a bullet when he went downhill. Um, and he was famous for his dough tunes. So he would, you know, back in the 80s, we only had um, uh, cassette tapes. So he would bring these mixed tapes of music to the, to the race, plug it into the van, and we would have the most amazing uh, mixed tape of, you know, of, of the coolest music that Doughboy had put together for us. So, um, yeah, that's just one example of uh, some of the great guys that uh, were on the team. Well, Alex, it's been great catching up with you. And I think your last statement's a great segue into my final question, which is, if you're going to crash, would you rather crash on the track or crash on the road? <laughs> well, I was not prepared to answer that. Oh, I, you know, I think crashing on the track, well, gosh, no, depends what, what kind of track you're on, I guess, because, you know, on a, on a wood track, you know, you can, you, you can usually get a burn, which isn't nearly as bad as road rash, but it can still be bad. You know, I was watching Mark, uh, Mark Hershey descend, those crazy descents in the Tour de France without gloves, bare hands, and he's going like a maniac. Okay, admittedly, he's very good at descending, great technique, but he did crash once, no gloves, and he's like sliding, keeping his hands off the ground, like, dude, so wrong. So, you know, if you have gloves on, and you can just wear gloves with no padding, just thin, thin gloves. But that makes all the difference. When I raced on the track, on the road, I always wore, especially criteriums, I wore two layers. Wear an undershirt, even a thin undershirt with your jersey or skin suit. And you have two layers. They slide against each other, whether it's track or road. You don't get road rash. Just like when Mark Hersey crashed, he had the, the special shorts with two layers on the hip. Again, keeping the road rash you know, to a minimum. So I don't think there's any good time to crash, but I think there's things you can do to help um, alleviate some of the results. So leave it at that. Thanks for uh, appearing here on the uh, Outer Line uh, Pro Cycling Perspectives and uh, stay safe during this time here. And uh, we'll catch up with you sometime uh, shortly. I hope so. I look forward to it. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. gonna ride it out until it's over love get you what you want call me the plug living every day like i already want gone ahead take the bag and run we gonna ride it out until it's over love get you what you want call me the plug.